The Float Plane Notebooks by Clyde Edgerton. Part 1, 1956 to 1959. 1956, Norley. The dogs breathe in my face. They come to me and breathe in my face and turn around and run. Then another one comes up and does it. They don't jump on me. If they do, Papa hits them with a piece of water hose. Mama is pretty. I sleep with my head in her lap while we drive in the car in the night to go see Uncle Hawk. We woke up and started while cars still had their lights on, and then in one corner of the sky, it got lighter and lighter until the sun came up like a big old orange. My favorite dog is Ben because he is brown and white, and that makes him kind. Jack is black and white and has the biggest head of all. Zeb belongs to Mark. Mark pats him on the shoulder all the time. Mark is the only boy who plays the piano. His papa died in a war. I don't like chicken, so I eat apples until we stop. Papa gets mad because I don't eat any chicken. Then I get some vanilla ice cream. Chicken stinks. I like vanilla ice cream because it's kinder than chocolate. Thatcher is my brother. He washes his car all the time and goes to work to pay for it. Meredith is my other brother. It takes one whole day to get to Uncle Hawk's. He lives in Florida. Papa gets mad every time I ask him when are we going to get there. When we stop to let the dogs out, Meredith puts me up on his shoulders and runs with me until Papa hollers. I look down in his curly brown hair while I ride. Mama's prettier than Aunt Esther. Aunt Esther has gray in her hair. She's Mark's mama. I like Uncle Hawk. I'll be glad when we get there. Uncle Hawk puts his hand behind his back and holds his arm with his other hand. His hand that is hanging down flaps like a fish while he looks out the window and talks. I've been to Florida every year right after Christmas. Bliss. My first association with Thatcher's entire family was at their annual grave cleaning last summer. What an event. Cousins, aunts, uncles, and such got together, complete with picnic lunch, and when their work was finished, that graveyard was as clean and neat as a whistle. There's a path, wide enough for a car, which goes down into the woods behind their house. And if you walk or drive on it for a little ways, you come to another car path, which leads to their family graveyard. There beside the graveyard is a little open grassy area, and beside that is a raging wisteria vine, behind which is a pond. The graveyard itself is very serene with shafts of light coming down through tall pines onto the gravestones, which go back into the 1800s. So, one day each summer, this wonderful event happens. Cousins and such roll up their sleeves and then cut, mow, trim, and rake up a storm. That was association number one. Association number two was a trip to Florida, occurring this past Christmas before our marriage. I, of course, had no idea that I would ever be going to Florida this early in my life. But Thatcher and I got more and more serious up until November 3rd when he, at 19, asked me to marry him, and I, at 18, said I would. My words were, I will, Thatcher, I will. The words I like to say about Thatcher are these. Thatcher stands tall. He is slightly over six feet, and I think he stands tall not only in stature, but in spirit. He has a firmament about him, a steadiness. They are a wonderful family. 
full of wonderful family members and names. Isn't Thatcher a fun but somehow masculine name? And Meredith, his brother, doesn't that name have a rolling ring to it? And Nora Lee, his little sister, soft and sweet. The trip to Florida, an annual event for the Copelands to visit Thatcher's Uncle Hawk and Aunt Sybil, started out on an even enough keel at 4 a.m., having to do with lighter traffic in the early morning hours. My parents weren't too happy with the whole idea. They are less enthralled with the Copeland family than I am. But they finally said yes when they found out that Thatcher's aunt, Miss Esther, was going along. Miss Esther is a well-known upholding block of the community. Speaking of Meredith, Thatcher's 13-year-old brother, he has the has-a-sparkle-in-his-eye type as cute as a button, and always having something up his sleeve. He runs up to me, holds out his hands for me to pop his knuckles, then pretends it hurts terribly. His hair, dark brown, is naturally curly, the only one in the family that way. Along with him on the trip was Mark, a cousin his age, Miss Esther's son. Mark is a very polite young man and spends a good deal of time with Meredith. Meredith's father was lost in World War II. Before we left, Thatcher, Meredith, and Mark told me all about Silver Springs, which is near Lockler, Florida, where Uncle Hawk lives. I, having never been beyond North Carolina, was amazed at their talk of this Silver Springs, which has glass-bottomed boats, monkeys in the trees, and catfish playing football with a wad of loaf bread underneath uh, said glass-bottomed boats. And it all did turn out to be true. Florida definitely has an excitement in the air. One of the things my parents had a hard time understanding was anybody taking four bird dogs to Florida. They were necessary because the men needed to hunt. Two dogs were carried in the trunk of each car and could get air because the trunks were not completely closed. Old blankets were available for them to lie on. The places we stopped for the dogs to get out, going down and coming back, were little dirt side roads that seemed to be made for the occasion. Miss Esther drove her car and Mr. Copeland his. I loved being on the road, traveling before light with the one I love. We arrived in the fairly late afternoon. Yes, there we were in Florida, a very warm state with a sense of exhilaration which hangs in the air like the very fog. Uncle Hawk walked out of the house, out of the front of his store, to greet us. He is the oldest and the largest, and Miss Esther, his sister, is... I think, a little older than Mr. Copeland, who is the youngest. Thatcher's daddy, Mr. Albert Copeland. They all look alike, too. Uncle Hawk immediately hit Meredith on the shoulder and then grabbed him around the head and spoke loudly. Boy, you done gone up like an ochre stalk. Then he grabbed Thatcher and Mark around their heads and pulled them to his chest and them laughing and enjoying it and then hugged Miss Esther and Mildred and shook hands with Mr. Copeland pulling on Mr. Copeland's hand and grabbing him by the shoulder and laughing. Then he reached out his hand to me and was exceedingly nice, saying nice things about me. Mildred, having written that I'd be coming along on the trip, then he picked up little Nora Lee and carried her as we all went inside. The store is quite an establishment. It's a cafe-grocery-hardware store combination with gas pumps and a large fruit stand out front. Their home is next to the store, across a little side road, surrounded by a rock wall and with palms and Spanish moss hanging from big oak trees. Very pleasant. Inside the store, we were greeted by my aunt-to-be, Sybil. 
She was carrying a tiny short-haired dog named Dixie B, which Mr. Copeland had talked about on the way down, saying he hoped she had died. Come on in, said Aunt Sybil. She hugged everybody with one arm. She wore frilly lace around her neck and had a pleasant round face. Going to hug you too, she said to me, and she did. Anyone like something to eat? Oh no, said Miss Esther. We still got chicken in the car. Thatcher's mother, a beautiful, thick brown-haired woman who keeps up her fingernails, and who asked me to call her Mildred, said, What you got today? The usual, said Aunt Sybil. Tuna, chicken, ham, hamburger, hot dogs. I could use a hot dog without onions, said Mildred. What's tuna, said Meredith. Bless his heart. You know what tuna is. No, I don't. Fish. It's a kind of fish. Comes in a can. Ain't you going to school up there, boy, said Uncle Hawk. No, sir. I mean, yes, sir, but we don't study tuna. That Meredith is a regular spark plug. Sleeping arrangements were available for all. Miss Esther and I settled into the bedroom of Uncle Hawk and Aunt Sybil's daughter, Lee, who lives and works in Kentucky and had left to go back on the morning of the day we arrived, the day after Christmas. Lee's a social worker and Christmas is one of her busiest times, Aunt Sybil said. I was to sleep on a rollaway bed, Miss Esther on the single bed, Mildred and little Nora Lee in the living room on a fold-out couch. Mr. Copeland, Thatcher, Meredith, and Mark were to sleep in the guest room built onto the garage out behind the house. From there, they would get up early and go to the fields to hunt. I, of course, did not visit Thatcher in those quarters, nor did I wish to. The first night, we watched television for a while in the living room. Then Aunt Sybil said maybe we ought to turn off the television and talk a little bit, catch up, which Miss Esther agreed with. One of the first things Uncle Hawk wanted to talk about was the float plane kit, which Mr. Copeland bought from Mr. Hoover, who's going to teach Mr. Copeland to fly in exchange for hickory shavings that Mr. Copeland gets from the sawmill he runs, the Anderson sawmill. Mr. Hoover has a restaurant and cooks barbecue with the hickory shavings. How big's the thing, Albert? asked Uncle Hawk. Twenty feet. The fuselage, the middle part's called the fuselage, and the wingspan's 34 feet. She can sit one or two. I'm using the two option. It's called a float plane. Light off the water. Mr. Hoover sent all the pages to the plane weren't there, said Miss Mildred. To the plans weren't there, said Mildred. It's mostly aluminum tubing, said Mr. Copeland. I'll fly it off the lake. What kind of engine, asked Uncle Hawk. All the plans aren't there, said Aunt Sybil. I'll find them. I just got me a notebook to keep up with all I'm doing right now, what I do to it, and the test runs. That's required by law, the FAA. It's an experimental aircraft. He didn't write it accurate about what happened, though, said Thatcher. I do, too. Not on that first test run. Well, I sure did. Thatcher said one thing happened at the lake, but when Mr. Copeland wrote it down, it sounded quite different. Norley. I was sitting under the tree when they came out of the house and went into the shop, so I followed them. They got the float plane down off the table to load it on the boat trailer. The wings were folded back against the sides. It had two propellers in front, and Papa had screwed two lawn chairs in it where you sit. Can I go, I said. You need to stay here with your mama, said Papa. Mama came out the back door. 
How do you know it'll float? She said, it'll float. Joe Ray Hoover said, it'll float. I ain't worried about it floating. If it sinks, said Thatcher, that's $130 of chainsaw engines on the bottom of Lake Blanca. Lake Blanca. Thatcher and Meredith painted it red. That's the last thing I'm worried about, says Papa. Why can't I go, I said. You ain't old enough, said Meredith. I am too. I'm five. You'll be in the way. I wanted to see what all would happen. Please, Papa, I won't be in the way. Let her go, said Mama. You need somebody there to run for help. They let me go. They said they were going to zip it around on the lake. They let me ride in the back of the truck, and they all rode in the front. The dogs rode in back with me. We had a long ride to Lake Blanca. Papa drove slow. It was a sunny day, and we were just riding along, pulling it behind us down the road with people passing us. When we got it to the lake, a lot of people came around and watched them get it down in the water. Meredith and Thatcher had it on their, had on their bathing suits and were down in the water, and Papa was standing on the plank thing that goes out in the water. Meredith just got to be a teenager. More and more people came up, and Meredith and Thatcher got out of the water. Who's going with me first, said Papa. He was standing on the wood thing, and he was holding the wing. Meredith said he would go. Because the wing was in the way, they couldn't get it close enough to the wood thing to stand on to get in it. Then they got it turned the right way and got in. Papa told Thatcher to hold the tail while he started it up. It was sunk down low with him and Meredith both in there. Papa sent Thatcher to the truck to get the lawnmower rope to start it with. The little rope with the little wood handle and a knot in the end. A man who walked out there was holding the float plane while Thatcher went and got the rope. I was staying in the back of the truck, like Papa told me. Thatcher and the man held on to the tail while Papa tried to start an engine, but it wouldn't start. Then he wrapped the rope around the little thing on the other engine and jerked it, and it started. It was the one in front of Meredith. It was running real fast and made a lot of noise, and the plane was pulling on Thatcher and the man. The dogs were standing there barking. Papa told them to turn loose. When they turned loose, the plane started out in this big circle. The engine was real loud, and Papa was pointing down under the front inside and hollering at Meredith. The plane was turning in a big circle back around toward the wood thing where the man was. The dogs were still barking and standing on the wood thing. The man started running back onto the land. Papa bended down and I couldn't see him no more. The plane was going in a big circle, but it was headed toward the wood thing. Meredith stood up. He bended over like he was talking to Papa. He jumped out. The airplane kept in the circle and missed the thing you stand on. It kept going in a big circle and was heading back right at Meredith. So he started swimming fast and looking back over his shoulder. It looked like it was going to miss him, but it, Papa was down inside working on it, it straightened out all of a sudden and came right at Meredith, and he just waited for it. And when it got to him, he dived underwater. Then Papa stood up, and when he sat down, it was headed straight for the land. And it, when it hit the land, it sort of flipped Papa up to the front and then back. He put safety belts in it when we got home. The dogs ran up around him barking. The motors shut off and they quit barking. Fox and Trader. Thatcher told Mama when we got home that if Papa had been going any faster, he would have cut his head off in the propeller when he hit the land. But he wouldn't have because he was on the side where the engine didn't start. <laughs> Thatcher.
this float plane thing Papa's working on, I swear. The frame's a bunch of aluminum pipes that fit together, and it's on pontoons, so it'll fly off a lake. Papa says by the time he's finished building it, he'll have all his flying lessons from Mr. Hoover, who has an instructor's license and instructs part-time at the airport. Then he'll fly it off Lake Blanca. My ass. He's taken it to the lake once to try it out on the water, and it just turned in these two big circles and ended up grounding itself, and Meredith jumped out. So when we get home that afternoon, Papa writes in his notebook, it says record on the front. He had the date, the temperature, the wind direction, the altitude of the lake, which he said was sea level. Hell, I got more sense than that. And then this. Narrative account. The experimental aircraft was towed to Lake Blanca behind owner's Jeep truck. Along for the occasion was the owner, sons Meredith Copeland and Thatcher Copeland, daughter Nora Lee Copeland, and two animals, Fox and Trader, dog names. The aircraft floated level in the water and was run successful out on the water and back in. This was the first test run. Passengers were the owner and son Meredith. All parts worked. Then it's got Meredith's and Mark's and Nora Lee's weights and heights. I'd be in there, but I'm grown. Papa, I said, you wrote up in that notebook that it was a successful test run. Couldn't much more have gone wrong except if it blowed up. What are you talking about, he says. You wrote down that it was successful. It was, but it ran around in circles and one of the engines wouldn't start. The rudder was caught. I know, but you didn't write that down and about the engine not starting. Eh, no need to. I got it straightened out. That's why I didn't write it down. I got it straightened out. But you're supposed to write down what happened. What happened was, I fixed the rudder, and now the engine starts. I'll write that in later. There's no need to write about all that for the test run. Just the simple facts. Papa, that's... Why you got them weights and heights and birthdays in there? So they won't get lost. What will the FAA say if you got all... It's a record. That's all it is. I'm keeping it. It's my record. You want a record of something? You write it up. But don't you go complaining about my record or how I keep it, or I'll hide it. You ain't no government official. I asked him later about the lake being at sea level, and he said all water has to be at sea level. You can't tell him nothing. Bliss. Mr. Copeland was explaining about a company in Michigan that modified chainsaw engines for use on airplanes when Uncle Hawk stood and said, I gotta feed the dogs. Who wants to come? I can't get over the importance of dogs to this family. Mr. Copeland, Meredith, and Mark went along and Thatcher reluctantly followed. Wanting to be with me, I firmly believe, yet not wanting, I suppose, to be the only man left inside among several women. They went out the back door. I momentarily harbored the thought of going with Thatcher out into the night to feed the dogs, but relinquished it. Well, how about you, Bliss, says Aunt Sybil, turning to me. Where did you get a lovely name like that? It was my grandmother's name. She died before I was born. I think it's wonderful to keep names in the family. We named Lee after my sister who died a year to the day before Lee was born. Poor thing had a stroke, and there is not the slightest history of stroke in the family. When's the wedding? 
next spring, May 5th, the day after the grave cleaning. Mr. Copeland suggested that, so you and Uncle Hawk would be up there, too. Well, that's just wonderful. Thatcher is such a nice young man, and I've been watching him grow up since he weren't bigger than nothing. In the back door comes all the men, with the addition of Dan Braddock, whom I had heard some talk about, but whom I had yet to meet. I knew he was Uncle Hawk's partner at the store, but wasn't around too much because of his other businesses. They came in, and Uncle Hawk pulled in another chair from the dining room. Dan Braddock's hugged a few necks. Dan Braddock hugged a few necks, took a seat, and went into talking about his business. His appearance was singular. Most noticeable was his belt being extraordinarily high, with his main portion of his stomach below his belt buckle. He had a big, fat, red face, a Stetson hat, which he did not remove, but instead pushed back on his head. He had this noticeable manner of looking around at everybody without ever lighting down on one person. He went into talking about the old days and started using curse words and told about cheating the town of Lubbock, Texas, out of $4,000 on a land deal and about how he wanted to get into the real estate business full-time. Miss Esther suddenly stands up and says she wants to go on back to get ready for bed. I also stood, knowing the language was getting too rough for my ears. Then Miss Esther told Mark he ought to go out and get ready for bed. Mark looked at Meredith. Meredith looked at his mother, Mildred, and said, I want to stay. Am I talking too strong for the kids? asked Mr. Braddock. I myself certainly thought so. Yes, I suppose. A little, I think, said Miss Esther. It's too bad Thomas didn't live through the war, Mr. Braddock said to Miss Esther. You'd have had to get used to it. Thomas never cheated nobody, Dan, and if he did, he didn't laugh about it. Well, said Mr. Braddock. I understand he might have cheated somebody. Miss Esther didn't say anything. She stood there staring at him for about five or ten seconds and then walked on into the bedroom. As I departed, I noticed that Mr. Braddock's eyes were darting around the room, looking at everybody, and as I walked into the bedroom, Miss Esther called out to Mark to go on out and get ready to go to bed. Now, she said. I then prepared for bed, hoping I could, would sleep well in strange circumstances. I felt it would be appropriate to say something because Miss Esther seemed a little, I suppose, flustered is the best word. So I said, your family is very interesting. They are, they are, she replied. Hawk's always been as good as he could be, giving people things, taking on Dan like he did as a business partner, and then Dan turning out like he did. As she turned back her sheet, as she turned back her sheet, I noticed her hand was shaking. I turned back the sheet on my rollaway bed. Your husband was named Thomas. Yes, Thomas Carl. Thomas Carl Oakley. Next morning was Silver Springs, and it was all I had dreamed and more. The glass bottom boats were exquisite. What a sight looking down into those underwater caverns. What exquisite underwater scenery. And just as was promised, the guide, upon encountering a school of catfish, threw a ball of white bread over the side, and as we watched through that glass boat bottom, the catfish chased the bread all over the place, one and then the other running with it, and all of this in this exquisite underwater world where the water was so very clear, as if it were all happening in the very sky. It was as if 
the very sky were below you, open and naked. And to top it all off, there was a man at Silver Springs named Ross Allen who milked rattlesnakes, putting the rim of a glass into a rattlesnake's mouth and causing venom to squirt into the glass, a few drops, enough to kill a human being. What a good, good time. After the men came in from hunting on each of the next three afternoons, Thatcher and I would have a little time to talk alone at a table in the cafe section. He'd tell me all about the hunt. He was very excited on all three days and would have that safari look, which I adore in a man, especially Thatcher, who stands so tall and looks so handsome in anything he wears. And Meredith, of course, would be trying to tell me all these things that happened on the hunt, and Thatcher, bless his heart, would want to be alone with me at the table. As I did not, as I did want to be alone with him, while at the same time I found Meredith a joy. So finally, Meredith and Mark would go out under the shed in the back of the store where Uncle Hawk and Mr. Copeland were cleaning birds. The spectacle of a bird cleaning is something to behold. Feathers and birds' insides all over the place, with the cats, Ford and Plymouth, sitting nearby, watching and waiting intently, waiting for the spoils of battle to come flinging their way. Thatcher explained how in the early morning before the hunt, Uncle Hawk comes to the foot of their bed before light and holds their feet until they wake up. Then he comes on over to the store while they get dressed. Then they walk across the road in the dark and in through the back door of the store where Uncle Hawk is cooking breakfast, pretending he's old Ross, his granddaddy, and singing while he cooks breakfast, like old Ross used to do. Old Ross was Thatcher's great-granddaddy, and died back before Thatcher was born. Thatcher's granddaddy, Tyree, used to do the same thing at breakfast, sing like his daddy. Now, Uncle Hawk pretends he's old Ross, and he sings. Thatcher also told me on the second day that they'd killed a rattlesnake. Horrors. You said our warm goodbyes and left without incident on the fifth morning at about 6 a.m., we drove through some pretty country in Florida and the trees far with the trees far apart. I like it with space between the trees and on up through Georgia and South Carolina. At some point when we stopped to let the dogs out and Thatcher and I were relatively alone, I asked him what Dan Braddock meant when he made the comment about Mark's father cheating. Thatcher said nobody ever talked about it, but it had to do with another woman overseas during the war. That's all he knew. I wondered about it, but also recalled the wisdom of that saying, let bygones be bygones. We finally arrived home without event. My mother said she was, was relieved the trip was over. She said it with an attitude which led me to believe she didn't grasp the force with which Thatcher and I were in love. Mark When we were driving back from Florida... Aunt Mildred told Bliss about finding the drowned kitten that time. That was back when me and Meredith were little. She pulled up the kitten out of the well in the water bucket. Meredith done it, drowned a whole litter. Me and him were playing marbles when she pulled it up. She screams, oh my God, looks down into the well and says, are they all down there? She unhooks the bucket from the well rope. It's got water and the kitten in it and walks to the tool shed. Meredith and me follow her. She gets a shovel, goes around behind the tool shed, sets a water bucket on the ground, digs a hole, 
and pours the water and the kitten into the hole. The kitten floats, then the water seeps down in the ground, leaving him in the hole, sopping wet, with white skin where his fur is parted. Meredith and me stand there watching. Aunt Mildred covers him up and steps on top of the dirt, which sinks down with her footprints in it over and over. Where's Thatcher? she says. He was supposed to drown those kittens in the pond. Then, when Uncle Albert comes home and Thatcher says he didn't do it, that he gave them to Meredith to do it, Uncle Albert finds us. Did you drop them kittens down that well, Meredith? No, sir. Well, who did? Mark? I did not. That's a story. You did. You held them by the neck and dropped them. Sit down on that root, says Uncle Albert. Both of you. Thatcher, nor Lee, come sit on this root right this minute. We all sit. Uncle Albert walks back and forth. He is short and always wears loose overalls. He talks, walking back and forth. Finally, he says, Mark, you going home and tell your mama I'm going to whip you and Meredith and Thatcher. I'll be waiting right here. When I get home, I can't get my breath to talk because I'm crying so hard. Mother's looking in the refrigerator when I walk in, and then I'm holding on to her crying. I can look through the window and see that they're standing there waiting for me. Mother walks with me outside to the tree. What's happened, she says. These boys drowned some cats in the wrong place, in the damn well. And I aim to whip mine, and I'll whip yourn if you're a mind. I ain't a mind, says Mama, Mother. I'll send, I'll tend to Mark. We walk back home. Mother walks with her hand on my head, and Meredith hollers that he's going to beat me up. Uncle Albert tells him to be quiet. I stand at the window and see Uncle Albert talk to them some more and then send them after switches. Then I see him whip them. I stand at the window and see Uncle Albert. Sorry about that. I stand at the window and see Uncle Albert talk to them some more and then send them after switches. Then I see him whip them with their pants down, bending over. Mother sees me looking and tells me to get away from the window. Then she tells me it's wrong to drop kittens down the well, but that she knows I didn't do it, and for me not to ever tell a story. The other worst time when Meredith lied was when we started the well digger, when he started the well digger and got me to lie too. That was all his fault. I just thought we were going to camp out, that's all. Mother was out on the back porch potting a plant. There was a big, flat, fat black cloud turning up into itself. But below it, you could see the sun setting like a full moon. Mother, can I still camp out, I say. Uncle Albert says the rain's all blowed around. We'll have to see, son. Oh, look, Mark, look at that sunset. Oh, I don't think I've ever seen one so beautiful. And look what it does to the crepe myrtle. Can I, Mother? Look. Come here, look at that. Isn't that beautiful? Yes, ma'am. Can I? Is it going to be just you and Meredith? Yes, ma'am. In the backyard? Yes, ma'am. Well, if you'll practice your music and that cloud goes away, but you can't go off, and if you all want breakfast in the morning, you come in and eat, and I'll fix you some breakfast. Meredith ain't old enough to cook yet. He's liable to burn himself. So I practice my piano music. I'm playing this song, these songs I don't like very much, minuets and stuff. Meredith thinks it's sissy. I mash on the soft pedal so he won't hear it from outside. 
I think about what if I could play boogie-woogie songs like Miss Paulson does after church on Wednesday nights sometimes. I see people standing around me when I finish playing some boogie-woogie, smiling at me, telling me how wonderful it was. What a beautiful way I played it. And there's a girl there waiting for me who falls in love with me. And then if I die, she'll kneel down over me and be dressed in a white dress. Meredith is putting up the tent on the grass beside the garden over in his backyard. Was that you playing, he says. Yeah, I hadn't practiced today. Later, we're lying in the tents on our stomachs, looking at the fire, which is almost out. We talk about what we're going to do when we grow up. Meredith says he's going to be a truck driver and a pilot. I say I'm going to be a doctor and a pilot. Meredith asks me about my daddy and says that his mother told his Aunt Joanne from Ohio that his daddy, that my daddy had a French girlfriend when he was in the Army. Meredith says that it's okay because you can do whatever you want to when you're in the Army. I tell him it's not true about my daddy and that you have to follow the rules when you're in the Army. Then Meredith says we ought to go over and sit in the well digger in his yard and pretend it's an Army tank. They're digging a new well. I say okay, but I feel worried. We go through the darkness across Meredith's yard to the well digger. When we get there, he shines his flashlight on it. Let's get up in front, he says. We climb up into the truck cab. Meredith sits behind the steering wheel. Let's turn on the well digging part, he says. He takes the key from a wire hanging on the mirror. We get out and walk in the dark around to the back of the truck. Meredith shines the flashlight on the motor until he finds the key slot. He sticks the key in the slot. It is almost as high as he can reach. He holds the flashlight with his other hand. They turn the key, then click the switch over there, and it starts. He turns the key. Click it. You click it. Well, hold the flashlight then. Meredith hands me the flashlight and clicks the switch. The machine cranks with this rattling, cranking, popping noise. I turn out the flashlight and start running. Stop, then start again toward the tent. I have to run past Meredith's house to get back to the tent. Meredith hollers at me, bring flashlight back. But I kept running. Lights come on at Uncle Albert's. The front door opens and I click off the flashlight, duck into a cornrow and lay on my stomach and watch. I feel the sand under my belt buckle against my skin and wet grass blades against my arm. I'm afraid to move. Uncle Albert comes out onto the porch and stands under the light bulb. He's in his pajamas and barefooted. His legs are bowed and his fists bald. Meredith! Meredith didn't answer. The well digger sounds like hundreds of pots and pans. Uncle Albert starts down the steps, then turns and goes back in the house. Meredith comes running by me. I call him. He stops, come back, comes back, and ducks into the cornrow with me. Come on, he says. We gotta get out of here. Uncle Albert, now dressed, comes out onto the porch and yells, Meredith! Meredith drops down beside me. Aunt Mildred and Thatcher come onto the porch. They start toward the well digger. We crawl along the cornrow, headed for the far end of the garden. Meredith says, let's go follow him. I stop, then I follow him. We hide behind a line of bushes close to the well digger. Uncle Albert shines the light on the motor in back, finds the switch, and turns it off. The well digger shakes to a stop. They start back toward the house. We go running through the garden to the tent. When we get to the tent, a light comes on in my house. We duck into the tent and sit on the blankets. Where'd you go? asked Meredith. I was getting out of there. I couldn't see how to turn it off, you chicken. I am not. Why'd you start it up? To see if it would? He's going to know you did it. 
No, he won't. Get under here and play like you're asleep. We get under the blankets. Uncle Albert, Aunt Mildred, and Thatcher walk up to the tent. Meredith, says Uncle Albert, come out here. Meredith throws back his blanket. I don't move. He crawls out. Meredith, how come this fresh mud is tracked across here? And how come you got mud all over your boots? And how come you're wearing your boots? We tried to catch a nigger trying to start up the well digger. And then we come back here. That's all. That's a joke, says Thatcher. You done it sure as day. You lie. I can kind of see a nigger in my mind. Yeah, I say, crawling out. Let's go to bed, said Mildred, and talk about it tomorrow. It won't nothing but them starting up the well digger, and now it's turned off. Don't crank it up no more, Meredith, and you boys quit fibbing. Your nose will fall off. Mother walks up. What's going on? Somebody started up the well digger, says Thatcher. I heard it, said Mother. Have you been away from that tent, Mark? Yes, ma'am. We had to, to try to see who started the well digger over there. I told you not to leave that tent. We had to go try and out, try to find out who it was, says Meredith. And it was a nigger, a big nigger. So we came back. It was. Whether you believe it or not, it was a nigger. Big. I'm going to bed, said Mildred, starting to the house. Good night. Mother makes us go inside and sleep in my room. Meredith sleeps on a mattress on the floor. We talk some more before we go to sleep. And I look through the window screen at the mimosa tree and stars in the black sky and wish we were outside. Those were two times Meredith lied. I don't tell lies, except I did that time about the well digger, but it was because of Meredith, and I got to thinking about it, and I thought about the nigger until I could see him in the darkness by the well digger, moving slowly, white eyes in the dark, moving in the darkness around to the far side of the well digger. The nigger had been there. Jesus would still love me if the nigger had been there, and he probably had been. He could have been there, but in case he hadn't been there at all, I prayed, Jesus, I'm sorry. If the nigger won't there, I think he might have been there, though. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry if the nigger won't there.